everybody and welcome back. So we're going to start on the nervous system. This is chapter 9, page 175. Um, the first thing that you're going to see at the bottom is organization of the nervous system. And this is going to start with um, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. So your CNS and your PNS. Um, your CNS is going to contain uh, your brain and spinal cord. And then uh, your PNS is going to contain your uh, cranial nerves and your spinal nerves. Um, so there's a subdivision of the PNS called the autonomic nervous system, and this is going to contain sympathetic and parasympathetic. So sympathetic is going to be um, when your body is kind of in a fight or flight mode, and parasympathetic is going to be when your body is more at rest and you're at peace. Um, so the way that uh, it was described to me was to think sympathetic and scared. You see a snake, you're going to be scared. Um, your pupils are going to dilate because you want to see everything that's around you to protect yourself. So your body's already in this mode. Um, you're going to have an increased heartbeat because you're going to be ready for fight or flight. Your airway is going to be relaxed because you're going to need all that air um, filling your lung space so that you can get away from that snake. Uh, your digestion, urination, and peristalsis, which is the movement of food through your alimentary canal, is going to be put on hold because you don't need those things to survive at that moment. Your body is literally just taking everything that it needs to get through that moment one step at a time. Um, so the parasympathetic, I was told, is peaceful. So this is your resting position. This is when you're relaxed. Maybe you're at home watching TV. Your pupils are going to constrict because there's no danger to see. There's nothing that you need to be aware of at that moment. Um, your heartbeat's going to be slow because you don't have to worry about anything. You're resting. Uh, your airway's going to be constricted because your breaths aren't going to be labored. You're not trying to fill that airway uh, very quickly to get away from something. And your digestion, urination, and peristalsis are all a go because you are not at a risk or a panic for something. Um, so these are the autonomic nervous system. So I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but that kind of breaks that down before we get to that part. I'm now going to page 176, and we're going to look at neurons and glia. All you need to know about this is that neurons are nerve cells, and glia are the supporting cells for the neurons. Um, they're just kind of their helpers. So the neurons are going to conduct uh, impulses, and glia are just going to support them. So we're going to jump over to neurons and neuron structure. Um, there's a main part. It's the cell body, and there's branching projections called dendrites and one elongated projection known as an axon. So dendrites are the uh, processor projections that carry impulses to the neuron bodies, and axons are processes that carry impulses away from neuron bodies. So axon away and dendrites going to go to. Um, so there's different types of neurons. Um, if you're looking at the top of page 177, we have sensory neurons, motor neurons, and inner neurons. So sensory neurons are going to carry impulses to the spinal cord and brain from all parts of the body. And they're also called afferent neurons. Um, so your body is going to send these uh, impulses to the spinal cord and to the brain. Then we have motor neurons, which are also called efferent neurons, and these carry impulses in the opposite direction, away from the brain and spinal cord. They do not conduct impulses in all parts of the body, and there's two kinds of tissue. There's muscle and granular epithelial tissue for these. And then next we have inner neurons. These are going to conduct impulses from sensory neurons to motor neurons, so they often connect with each other and form a complex central network of uh, nerve fibers, and these are sometimes called central or connecting neurons because of this. So we're going to bump down to glia. The function of glia or neuroglia um, is that it's a special type of supporting cell. And so this literally means glue in Greek, um, and the function of it is to hold the functioning neurons together and to protect them. And there's a link that I would also like to post um, in the description for this podcast where it is broken down in a video on YouTube. Um, so we know that glia perform many perfunct, uh, 
different functions. They regulate neuron function and kind of act as a glue, uh, but they also bring various functions of nervous tissue together in a coordinated whole. Uh, so an important reason that we're discussing this is because one of the most common types of a brain tumor is called a glioma. Um, so now we're going to go down on 177 to central glia. So glia are going to vary in shape and size. The large cells that look like stars are astrocytes. So astro think stars and then sites, um, meaning the end of this. So they're thread-like branches attached to neurons and to small blood vessels, and they hold these structures close to each other. So uh, along with the blood wall of the vessels, uh, blood vessels, astrocyte branches form two layer structure called a blood brain barrier, BBB. And so this separates the blood tissue and the nervous tissue to protect vital brain tissue from harmful chemicals that might be in the blood. And so we discuss this later as to why it's hard to find a cure for certain uh, disease processes, because you cannot get medication uh, through this blood-brain barrier. If we could, a lot of our problems would be solved, but this is intended to be a good thing, and sometimes it's not very helpful. Um, so then we're going to go down to microglia. These are smaller, micro, think smaller. Um, these are usually going to remain stationary, but if they're inflamed or uh, or degenerating in brain tissue, they enlarge and they move around and kind of act like microbe-eating scavengers or uh, phagocytes. So they'll surround a microbe and then draw it into the cytoplasm and di uh, digest it. Uh, they also like to clean up cell damage resulting from injury or disease, uh, much like phagocytosis in Chapter 3. And so the next that we're going to see is oligodendrocytes. These uh, hold nerve fibers together, and they also serve as um, they produce a fatty myelin sheath that envelops nerve fibers located in the brain and spinal cord, and the myelin sheath affects nerve conduction speed. So the, the purpose behind the myelin sheath is uh, so that these can be processes can be sped up so they can go as fast as they can. Because if you think about it, um, when your body is secreting hormones, this is going to take a longer time. This is a longer process. It's not that that big a deal that if you would like to think of it like hormones are snail mail. Hormones are putting a letter in the mail and sending it off, and it's going to be a couple of days before it gets there. It's going to take a while. But you can look at um, nerves and these conductions as uh, overnighting with Amazon. That's going to happen very quickly. Um, so you want that to happen. You want this myelin sheath to be around a nerve so that if you touch a hot stove, it's not going to take you you know, a minute to pull your hand away so that you don't get burned. It's only going to take you a couple of seconds because that conduction is so fast. So next we're on 178, uh, we're going to look at peripheral glia. Schwann cells are glial cells that also uh, form myelin sheaths, but they only do it in the PNS, the peripheral nervous system. Um, so the Schwann cells wrap entirely around only one axon, and this is in a uh, figure 9-4 on 178. So neurons with myelin-wrapped axons are called myelinated fibers, and nodes of Ranvier are the gaps between adjacent Schwann cells. The outer wrapped layer of Schwann cells is called the neurolemma. I do know that she said this was going to be on our test, so we do need to know that. So because there's no Schwann cells in the CNS, axons in the brain and spinal cord have no neurolemma. Um, and the fact that it's significant is because neurolemma plays an essential role in the regeneration of cut and injured axons. Um, therefore, the potential for regeneration for damaged axons in brain and spinal cord is far less than that in the penis. So now we're going to go over to nerve, nerves and tracts. So a nerve is a group of peripheral nerve fibers or axons bundled together to act like a strands of a cable. So if you've ever worked around an electrician and you have seen this, um, it's a bunch of smaller strands into one big strand. So peripheral nerve fibers usually have a myelin sheath, which if 
we are going to go ahead and go back and go over that. And myelin sheath is what is going to be that. Uh, it's going to speed up the conduction. Uh, myelin is white and peripheral nerves often look white because of this. Um, so if you're looking at figure 9-4, it's going to show that each axon in a nerve is surrounded by a thin wrapping of fibrous connective tissue called the endoneurum. And groups of these wrapped around axons are called fascicles. So a bunch of fascicles are, um, are singular endoneurums. Um, each fascicle is surrounded by a thin fibrous uh, perineurium. And a tough fiber sheath called the epineurium covers the whole nerve. So I would look at figure 9-4. This is broken down into those parts. This is just literally a bunch of terminology that you'll need to know. It's not that you have to break it down that deep into it at this point. Um, so the bundles of axons in the CNS are called tracks and uh, they're myelinated. And so they kind of, they form the white matter of the brain because remember we said that the myelin is white and that's why the peripheral nerves look white. Um, so the white matter of the brain and the spinal cord is because these tracks are myelinated. Brain and spinal cord tissue composed of cell bodies and unmyelinated axons and dendrites are called gray matter because it comes in a gray appearance. So there is no myelin um, and so it doesn't have that white effect. So we're still in 178. We're going to go under nerve signals, reflex arcs, down to neuron pathways. Um, so during every moment of our lives, nerve impulses speed over neurons and from our uh, spinal cords and brains. If all impulses cease to con uh, to conduct, life itself ceases. So only neurons can provide the rapid communication between cells that is necessary for maintaining life. Um, hormones are the only other kind of signal in the body that can send. Um, they travel more slowly than nerve signals and hormones can move from one part of the body to another via blood. Compared with a nervous impulse conduction, um, circulation is a very slow process because even though our blood's flowing very quickly, it takes a while for things to be processed just as if you were sending mail to the post office. Um, so nerve impulses are also called action potentials and we have talked about this in previous chapters and this is very important um, when it's going to come down to reflex arcs which is next. So Action potentials can travel over trillions of routes and routes made up of neurons uh, because they are the cells that conduct the impulses. So hence the routes traveled by nerve impulses are sometimes called neuron pathways. Uh, the basic type of a neuron pathway is called a reflex arc. And this is important to the nervous system functioning. The simplest kind of a reflex arc is a two neuron arc. Um, it's called this because it consists of two different types of neurons, a sensory neuron and a motor neuron. So three neuron arcs are the next simplest kind, and they consist of three kinds of neurons, a sensory neuron, inner neuron, and motor neurons. So we're just adding one more to it. So we're going to bump down to the purple heading and structure of reflex arcs. Um, these are like one-way streets, and they allow an impulse conduction in only one direction. So this is also shown in figure 9-5. This gets a little bit confusing, but really you just need to know the bolded terms. So impulse conduction normally starts in receptors. Receptors are the beginning of dendrites of sensory neurons, and they're located often far from the spinal cord. So for an example, in tendons, skin, or mucous membranes. So these are not close to your spinal cord. They're farther out. Um, so in figure 9-5, the sensory receptors are located in the quadricep muscle group. And in this reflex that's illustrated there, the stretch receptors are going to be stimulated when muscles are stretched as a result of a uh, tap on a patellar ligament from a rubber hammer used by a physician to elicit a reflex during a physical examination. So, you know, when you were little and you went to the doctor for your little checkup, they sit you on the table and they're going to kind of tap your kneecap with a rubber hammer. And this is just to get that reflex um, uh, impulse. They're wanting to check for that.
So the nerve impulses that is generated in the neurological pathway and it is uh, the knee-jerk effect or an example of the simplest form of a two-way reflex arc. So one and two, you're hitting it and it's moving. Um, in a knee-jerk reflex, only sensory and motor neurons are involved. The nerve impulse that's generated by stimulation of the stretch receptors travels along the length of the sensory neuron's dendrite to its cell body located in the dorsal root ganglion or posterior root ganglion. And a ganglion is a group of nerve cell bodies located in the peripheral nervous system. So this ganglion is located near the spinal cord. Um, each dorsal root ganglion contains not one sensory neuron cell body, but hundreds of them. And this is in figure 9-5. Um, the axon of a sensory neuron travels from the cell body in the dorsal root ganglion and ends near the dendrites of another neuron located in the gray matter of the spinal cord. Remember, we said the gray matter is where the uh, myelin sheaths, or the sheaths are non-myelated. Sorry. Um, so a microscopic space that separates the axon ending in of one neuron from the dendrites of another neuron. This gap is a junction between nerve cells, and it's called a synapse. So um, if you kind of, if you can make a fist out of both of your hands and put them together and then kind of pull them apart a little bit, the gap between your two fists is going to be called the synapse. So the nerve impulse stops at the synapse. Chemical signals are sent across the gap, and then a new impulse continues along the dendrite cell body and axon of the motor neuron. So it's going to send something across this gap. So the motor neuron axon forms as a synapse with a structure called an effector, an organ that puts nerve cells into effect. So effectors are usually muscles or glands. And muscle contractions, gland secretions are the kinds of reflexes operated by these effectors. So you kind of have something to get it moving. So we're going to go over to 180 to reflex responses. Um, an involuntary response to impulse conduction over a reflex arc is called a reflex. So in short, an impulse conduction by a reflex arc causes a reflex to occur. So in our example, reflex, the nerve impulses that reach the quadricep muscles, the effector result in the knee-jerk response. So then it's telling us to look at figure 9-5 uh, again on the previous page to the inner neuron that's shown. Um, some of the reflexes involved three rather than two neurons. And in the more complex types of responses, an inner neuron um, in addition to sensory and motor, is involved. So this is where you have your three. So in a three-neuron reflex, the end of the sensory neuron axon, neuron's axon synapses first with the inner neuron before the chemical signals are sent across to the second synapse, or the second synapse, resulting in a conduction through the motor neuron. So for example, application of an irritating stimulus to the skin of the thigh initiates a three-neuron reflex response that causes contraction of muscles to pull the leg away from the irritant. And a three-neuron arc is called a withdrawal reflex. So this is going to tell you when you need to pull back from something. So the reflex arc that we saw before on the previous page with the hammer, just a knee jerk, there wasn't any um, danger in that. It was a subconscious kind of feel and when your knee's going to make this jerking motion. Um, so now we're going to go down just a little bit. We're in the last paragraph on 180. Um, all inner neurons lie entirely within gray matter of the brain or spinal cord. And we said that gray matter was non-myelated sheaths. Um, gray matter forms the H-shaped inner core of the spinal cord because of the presence of the inner neuron. Three neuron reflex arcs have two synapses. However, a two neuron reflex arc has only a sensory neuron and a motor neuron with one synapse between them. So let's see if we can go back and find a picture of this. Um, this is going to be on 179. There's, you know, two little boxes that are referring to this knee um, that's being shown, the reef, uh, knee jerk, and it's shaped kind of like an H. It's like a brown photo. So this is showing us where there's two synapses. Um, 
So we're going to go over to nerve impulses and a definition of a nerve impulse. So um, a nerve impulse is a self-propagating wave of electrical disturbance that travels along the surface of a neuron's plasma membrane. So you can visualize it as a tiny spark sizzling away down a fuse. So if you have ever celebrated 4th of July and if you've ever bought a pack of sparklers, you're going to light it and it's going to kind of sizzle its way down until it's burned out. So this is kind of how these nerve impulses are going to work. Um, so nerve impulses do not continually race along every nerve cell surface. They first have to be initiated by a stimulus, a change in the neuron's environment, and then that could be pressure, temperature, and chemical changes, and those are usually the stimuli. Part two. So we're starting on page 181 in the nervous system, and we're going to start with the mechanism of a nerve impulse. So there's an easy way to break down um, this next piece under the purple label. Um, so mechani mechanism of a nerve impulse, we can put it into three pieces. So in our first bubble, if you're writing this down, there's an excess of sodium ions, Na+, on the outside of the membrane, and these polarize the axon. So I'm going to draw an arrow and I'm going to have another bubble. And in the second bubble, it's going to say stimulation of the membrane triggers inward diffusion of Na plus or sodium ions depolarizing the membrane. And so then I'm going to have an arrow pointing to the next, the last bubble. And it says the membrane repolarizes as original state is achieved. Um, so that's our three bubbles for the mechanism of nerve impulse. And the point of that is to get a signal across a synapse. Um, so now we're going to go over to the conduction of nerve impulses, and there's also a, um, a good reference for this in your Evolve learning in the front of your book. If you have the code, I highly suggest going in and watching it. It is a very, very, very short video, and it shows the conduction of a nerve impulse. It's only a couple seconds long, but it made so much sense to me when I watched it, and it's described way better than in this book. Um, it's always better if you can see it happening. Um, rather than having to look at a picture and try to imagine it in your head. So I'm going to do the conduction of nerve impulses tied in with um, figure 9-8 on page 183. So because that's how it kind of looked in the video, it makes a little bit more sense to me. So the impulse or action potential cannot go backward during the brief moment of repolarization and recovery of the previous section of membrane. So the self-propagating wave of electrical disturbance or the nerve impulse travels continuously in one direction across the neuron surface. So we are leaving, if you're holding your two fists up, it's leaving one fist to go to the synapse to get to the other fist. So we're looking at action potential in one. Um, so nerve impulses are also called action potential. So the point of this is to get a nerve impulse across because we're trying to send this letter. We're trying to get this overnighted. We're trying to make this happen quick. So because each one is a different in charge, um, this is called electric potential. It usually triggers an action by the cell. So in this case, transmission of the impulse itself. So if the traveling impulse encounters a section of the membrane covered with insulated myelin, it simply jumps around the myelin to the next gap in the myelin sheet. And this is called um, saltatory conduction. And this type of impulse travels much faster than possible in a non-myelated section. Saltatory conduction is also in figure 9-7. So remember we said that myelinated sheets are going to cause a conduction to happen faster. So in this case, they don't have myelinated um, 
sheets. These are non-melanated, so it's going to be slower. So they just kind of skip around it. They're going to find a faster way. They know somebody that works at the post office, so they're going to get their letters sent faster. So these are called saltatory conductions. So now we're going to go over to um, the side of 182 under synapses. So the structure and function of a synapse, the transmission of signals from one neuron to the next across the synapse is an important part of the nerve conduction process. So by definition, a synapse is a place where the impulses are transmitted from one neuron called the presynaptic neuron to another neuron called the postsynaptic neurons. And these are the names of your fists if you're holding them up. So you're wanting to get a um, nerve impulse from one fist, your presynaptic neuron, across the synapse between your fists to your next fist, which is the postsynaptic neuron. So three structures make up a typical synapse, a synaptic knob, a synaptic cleft in the plasma membrane of the postsynaptic neuron. And you can see this in figure 9-8. It's a very good description. And like I said, I would also get on the involved learning because it's going to make a lot more sense when you see it moving. And we might not necessarily have to get super in-depth to this, but I'm the kind of person that has to see it to know what it's meaning so that I can go on with the rest of my life. So a synaptic knob is a tiny bulge at the end of the terminal branch of a presynaptic neuron's axon. And each synaptic knob contains many small sacs or vesicles. Each vesicle contains a very small quantity of a chemical compound called a neurotransmitter. So when a nerve impulse arrives at the synaptic knob, neurotransmitter molecules are released from the vesicles into the synaptic cleft. And the synaptic cleft is um, the synapse, if you will. It's just the space between. Um, so the synaptic cleft is the space between the synaptic knob and the plasma membrane of the postsynaptic neuron. Uh, the plasma membrane is what these um, NA ions are trying to go through. Um, so it's an incredibly narrow space and it's only about two millionths of a centimeter in width and the synaptic cleft is filled with extracellular fluid matrix that holds the synaptic structure in place. Um, again, this is in 9-8 and we did talk about extracellular matrix in the past um, sections. It's what's going to hold some structures together without having it to be tied down to something. So the plasma membrane of a postsynaptic neuron is um, has protein molecules embedded in it on each opposite side of the synaptic knob. So these serve as receptors to which neurotransmitter molecules bind. And this binding can initiate an impulse to the postsynaptic neuron by opening ion channels in the postsynaptic membrane. So each type of neurotransmitter can only bind to a receptor that chemically fits with it, much like an enzyme fits with a substrate molecule. So the characteristics of neurotransmitters and receptors allow for very precise control of body function. So it's not going to try to connect with another puzzle piece that isn't right. It's going to go straight to where it belongs. It's kind of like the structure fits function. So after impulse conduction by postsynaptic neurons is initiated, neurotransmitter activity is rapidly terminated. Either one or both of two mechanisms causes this. So some neurotransmitter molecules are transported out of the synaptic, uh, synaptic cleft back to the synaptic knobs. Other neurotransmitter molecules are broken apart into inactive compounds by specific enzymes in the extracellular matrix of the synaptic cleft. So I like to get into the neurotransmitter part. This is on 183. Um, so neurotransmitters are chemicals by which neurons communicate. As previously noted, um, at trillions of synapses in the CNS, presynaptic neurons um, release neurotransmitters that assist, stimulate, or inhibit postsynaptic neurons. At least 30 different compounds have been identified as neurotransmitters, and they are not distributed randomly throughout the spinal cord and brain. Instead, specific neurotransmitters are located in discrete groups of neurons and released in specific pathways. So an example would be acetylcholine. Um, this is released at some of the synapses in the spinal cord at neuromuscular or nerve muscle junctions. And this is uh, also 
well-known ones are norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. They belong to a group of compounds called amines, which uh, may play a role in sleep, motor function, mood, and pleasure recognition. And I'm going to stop right there and go ahead and say that I have to take a uh, medication for this. I take Zoloft. So if you look up Zoloft, um, it's going to tell you that it's like a serotonin uh, inhibitor, a re-up. And so this is going to be similar to dopamine, more so to serotonin, and this is going to play uh, in the pleasure recognition. So if you have depression and you are taking Zoloft, this is going to help you get that mood back. Um, these are um, neurotransmitters that are trying to send signals to let you know that everything's okay. So they belong to uh, this group called amines, and they play different roles. So some are going to be in sleep. Um, some are going to be more motor function, mood, and pleasure recognition. So when you see um, norepinephrine, this is the opposite of epinephrine, um, and that's going to be more towards the sleep side. So two morphine-like neurotransmitters called endorphins and enkephalins are released at various spinal cord and brain synapses in the pain conduction pathway. And these neurotransmitters inhibit conduction of pain impulses and they are natural painkillers. So this would be like you going to a tattoo shop and you want to go get your first hole um, in your earlobe pierced. And then you also want to go ahead and get the second hole uh, pierced while you're there as well. So the very first piercing that you're going to get um, all these endorphins are going to rush to that site because these are natural painkillers. So that first piercing might not hurt. And you're thinking, oh, that wasn't that bad. I can handle the next one. Well, the next one is probably not going to go as well because all of your endorphins are already focused on that one spot that has already been uh, triggered. So moving down on 183, we're going to talk about uh, nitric oxide. So very small molecules such as these have an important role as neurotransmitters as well. So other, unlike most uh, other neurotransmitters, no diffuse it, or nitric oxide diffuses directly across the plasma membrane rather than being released from vesicles. So this is like a straight shooter. We're not trying to waste any time. So you can see this in table 9-1. It summarizes some of the major neurotransmitters, um, their locations, and their main functions. Um, so we're going to go over to table 9-1. We see that acetylcholine. Um, is in several areas of the CNS, PNS, neuromuscular junction, ANS, and visceral effectors. And this is excitatory or inhibitory and it regulates a parasympathetic effect. Um, and it's also involved in memory. So let's remember that parasympathetic is more of like a calm state. Um, so norepinephrine it has in several areas of the CNS, sympathetic division of the ANS. Um, this is in, uh, excitatory or inhibitory and it releases sympathetic effectors involved in emotional responses. Um, dopamine is in the brain and the ANS. It's mostly inhibitory and re regulates motor control involved in emotions and moods. Um, so we like to have dopamine. We like to have serotonin. So serotonin is in several areas of the CNS. Most inhibitory, it's involved in sleep, emotions, and moods. Um, endorphins and enkephalins in several areas of the CNS. The retina, intestinal tract, uh, most inhibitory, and it's involved in blocking pain. Nitric oxide is in several regions of the nervous system. Uh, signal from presynaptic to postsynaptic neuron. Um, so now we're going to go down to the central nervous system. We're moving on just a little bit farther. So the uh, central nervous system is centrally located, as in the name, and it has two major structures, like we said before, the brain and the spinal cord, and these are found along the midline of the body. So your brain is going to be protected in your cranial cavity in the skull. Um, 
you know, you get rocked around a little bit, it's not going to get harmed because this is what's controlling your body. Um, the spinal cord is surrounded by a spinal cavity in the vertebral column. So we know um, that our vertebrae, the weird shape bones back there that you have to go see the chiropractor for are what's going to keep these very, very, very intricate systems um, safe from harm. Um, so in addition to the brain and spinal cord, we're also protected by three membranes called meninges, and they're discussed a little bit later. So we're going to start with the brain and the divisions of the brain. Um, it's one of our largest organs consisting of the following major divisions named in ascending order beginning with the most inferior parts. So you have your brain stem, you have your cerebellum, your diencephalon, and your cerebrum. So in your brain stem, you have your medulla obligata, your pons, and your midbrain. Um, cere uh, cerebellum is one area. Diencephalon contains the hypothalamus, thalamus, and pineal gland, and then you have your cerebrum. So we're going to start with brainstem on page 185, and this is the lowest part of the brainstem. Um, it's the medulla oblongata. Um, I sincerely hope that everyone has seen the water boy because you won't forget that name. So immediately above the medulla lies the pons, and above that is the midbrain. So that's kind of confusing. I'm going to make this better for you. Um, you're looking at basically a broccoli stalk in the middle of your brain. The top part is the midbrain, the middle is the pons, and the bottom is the medulla. Um, the name can be a little bit confusing because when you think midbrain, you would think that it's in the middle of this, but no, it's more towards the middle of the brain. So it's the top part, pons is the middle, and the medulla is the bottom um, that's going towards your spinal cord. So um, medulla oblongata is enlarged upward extension of the spinal cord, and it lies inside the cranial cavity above a large hole in the occipital bone called the foramen magnum. The pons bulges out a little bit more than the medulla, and it forms a bridge to uh, the narrower midbrain, which is the top part. So all three parts of the brainstem function in a two-way conduction path. So sensory fibers conduct impulses up from the spinal cord into other parts of the brain, and motor fibers conduct impulses down from the brain to the spinal cord. So in the brainstem, small bits of gray matter mix closely and intricately with the white matter, so non-myelated and myelated uh, myofilament, um, to form reticular formation, which means net-like. So in the spinal cord, gray and white matter do not intermingle. Uh, gray matter forms the interior core of the spinal cord, and white matter surrounds it. So many important reflex centers lie in this brainstem. Uh, they are the cardiac, respiratory, vasomotor sensors, and they're collectively called vital centers because these are literally vital for your survival. You have to have your heart, you have to have your respiratory, you have to have vasomotor centers. So, for example, they are located in the medulla. Um, this is very, very, very important. Um, this is going to be more towards the occipital part of your uh, brain, which is the back part of your head. So if you have an injury to the back part of your head, um, that could be very, very damaging. So impulses from these centers contain heartbeat, respiration, and blood vessel diameter, which is important in getting your blood pressure. So next we're going to go down to cerebellum, and we're going to look at the structure and function. So in figure 9-10, um, the location, appearance, and the size are all in that figure. The cerebellum is the second largest part of the human brain, and it lies under the occipital lobe of the cerebrum, um, which is at the back. In the cerebellum, folded gray matter composes the thin outer layer and forms a large surface area of the nervous connections that allow for huge amounts of information uh, processing. So white matter tracks form most of the interior. Um, and notice that these tracks branch like tree-like patterns called uh, arbor vitae or living tree. So the functions of the cerebellum um, is 
if we're observing patients who have some sort of disease of the cerebellum or from animals that have had the cerebellum removed, uh, we know that the cerebellum plays an essential part in the production of normal movements. So a few examples that might make this clear. A patient who has a tumor of the cerebellum, frequently he loses um, his balance and topples over. He might feel like a drunken man when he walks. He can't coordinate his muscles normally. He may even complain, for instance, that he's clumsy about everything he does, and he can't even drive a nail or draw a straight line. So with the loss of normal cerebellum, uh, cerebe cerebellar functioning, he has lost the ability to make precise movements. So the most obvious function of the cerebellum then are to produce smooth, coordinated movements and maintain equilibrium and sustain normal postures. So um, we, um, we know that studies show that using new brain imaging methods to show the cerebellum um, that has far more functions than we thought. So the cerebellum may assist in this uh, cerebrum and other parts of the brain and giving an overall coordinating function for the whole brain. So now we're gonna go down to diencephalon and it's a small but important part of the brain located in the midbrain below the cerebrum above. So it consists of three major structures, the hypothalamus, thalamus, and pineal gland. Um, these are also in figure 9-10. It's gonna keep referring to that. And I also have um, printables on the website, uh, www.learnmelpn.com. So under hypothalamus, um, as the name suggests, it's located below the th uh, thalamus. In the posterior gland, the stalk that attaches to the undersurface of the brain and areas of gray matter located in the side walls of a fluid-filled space called the third ventricle are extensions of the hypothalamus. Um, so the old adage, do not judge about appearances, applies because um, it's very tiny, but it's very significant. Um, so it's measured by its contribution to healthy survival, and it's one of the most important brain structures. So impulses from some neurons whose dendrites and cell bodies lie in the hypothalamus are conducted by their axons to neurons located in the spinal cord. And many of these impulses are then relayed to muscles and glands all over the body. So the hypothalamus exerts major control over virtually all internal organs. And among the vital functions that it helps are to control heartbeat, constriction and dilation of blood vessels, and contractions of the stomach and intestines. So your heart's probably not going to be without this. Um, you're not going to be able to pass blood without this and you aren't going to be able to use the restroom or process food without this. So some neurons in the hypothalamus function um, in a surprising way. They make the hormones that the posterior pituitary gland secretes into the blood. So one of these hormones is the antidiuretic hormone or ADH and it affects the volume of urine excreted and the hypothalamus plays an essential role in maintaining uh, the body's water balance. So if you go on later to the um, to the chapter where we are talking about, um, not senses, I'm sorry, endocrine system, then you're going to see the antidiuretic hormone is going to affect your kidneys and how much uh, water is input. So other neurons in the hypothalamus function is endocrine or ductless glands. Uh, their axons secrete chemicals called relaxing hormones into the blood, which carries them to the anterior pituitary gland, and they release hormones, as their name suggests, and they control the release of certain anterior uh, pituitary hormones. So these in turn influence the hormone secretions of other endocrine glands. So the hypothalamus indirectly helps to control the functioning of every cell in the body. So some things may not come directly from the hypothalamus, but they might be like converted through it or they might start there and then be converted in the opposite way. So the hypothalamus is a crucial part of the mechanism for maintaining body temperature. It's marked elevation um, 
In body temperatures, the absence of disease frequently characterizes injuries and other abnormalities of the hypothalamus. So in addition, it's involved in regulation of water balance, sleep cycles, and the control of appetite and many emotions involved in pleasure, fear, anger, sexual arousal, and pain. Um, so down, um, also in the diencephalon, we have the thalamus. So it's just above the hypothalamus, um, and it's kind of dumbbell-shaped, and it's made of gray matter. So each enlarged end of the dumbbell lies in a lateral wall of fluid-filled chamber called the third ventricle. The thin center section of the thalamus passes from left to right through this ventricle, which is discussed more later. Um, the thalamus is composed chiefly of dendrites and cell bodies of neurons and have axons extending up towards the sensory areas of the cerebrum, and it performs the following functions. So we have four functions. It relays sensory information, associates sensations with emotions, regulates levels of consciousness, and participates in motor reflexes. That's a lot. So um, for relaying sensory information, it's neuron re uh, relay impulses to cerebral cortex from the sense organs of the body. Um, it associates its sensations with emotions. So almost all sensations are accompanied by a feeling of some degree of pleasantness or unpleasantness. And the way that these pleasant and unpleasant feelings are produced is unknown, except that they seem to be associated with the arrival of sensory impulses in the thalamus. So um, if it's regulating levels of consciousness, it plays a part of the so-called arousal or alerting mechanism that keeps us awake, uh, which I have not been very much of during nursing school, but thank you, Thalamus. Um, so participates in motor reflexes. It plays a role in mechanisms that produce complex reflex movements. So now we're going to go over to pineal gland, and this is the last one in the diencephalon. Um, and it seems very, very tiny, but this is the most important to me because I love sleep. So the posterior of the thalamus is a tiny mass protruding from the back of the diencephalon. It's called the pineal gland or pineal body, and it represents a small kind of or kernel of corn. It's teeny tiny. Um, so it receives sensory information about the strength of light seen by the eyes and adjusts its output of the hormone melatonin. So melatonin is known as the timekeeping hormone because it helps to keep the body's clock on time with the daily, monthly, and seasonal cycles of sunlight and moonlight. Um, and I know that we've probably heard of this before. I definitely have a bottle on my nightstand, but melatonin is naturally produced in your body. And rather than taking sleep aids um, with many things that can be addictive and then melatonin would be a better option if you need that sleep whenever you have a break uh, melatonin would be better because it's just a re-up on what you already have um, so this is uh, the timekeeping hormone and that will be important to know for the test so next we're going to go down to the cerebrum this is a different piece of the brain and we're on 187 at the top so it's the largest and uppermost part of the brain um, this makes up the left and right hemispheres um, so there's many ridges and grooves in these uh, convolutions or gyri or the grooves um and the grooves are called the sulci so the deepest sulci are called fissures and the longitudinal fissure divides them cerebrum into right and left halves or hemispheres and these halves are almost separate structures except for the inferior central band called the corpus callosum which is made up of white matter tracts so this is the only piece that kind of connects them so two deep sulci um, subdivide each cerebral hemisphere into four major lobes and each lobe into numerous convulsions um, convolutions i'm sorry the lobes are named for the bones that lie over them so that makes it a little bit easier you have a frontal lobe parietal lobe temporal lobe and occipital lobe just like you have a frontal bone parietal bone temporal bone occipital bone um and these kind of tell you where they're at too 
So frontal is going to be towards the very front of your head. Parietal is going to be behind it. Temporal is going to be on your sides near your temples. And the occipital is going to be the back. So the thin layer of gray matter called the cerebral cortex, made up of neuron dendrites and cell bodies, forms the uh, surface of the cerebrum. So white matter made up of bundles of nerve fibers or tracts um, composes most of the interior of the cerebrum. And uh, this white matter, there's a few islands of gray matter known as basal nuclei or basal ganglia, and those functions are essential for producing automatic movements and postures. So we're going to go down to the functions of the cerebrum. Um, what they, um, it's kind of hard to explain what they do, um, but they function in many other neurons um, in many other parts of the brains and in the spinal cord. So the neurons of these various structures continually bring impulses to cerebral neurons and also continually carry impulses away from them. So if all of the neurons are functioning normally and the cerebral norma, uh, neurons are not, um, there's some things that you could not do. Um, it says you could not think or use your will. You cannot remember anything that has ever happened to you. You could not decide to make the smallest movement, nor could you make it. You would neither um, see nor hear. You could not experience any of the sensations that make life so rich and varied. Nothing would anger or frighten you, and nothing would bring you joy or sorrow. You would be, um, in short, and unconscious. So this would be someone that's probably in a coma. So these terms sum up the major cerebral functions, um, consciousness, thinking, memory, sensations, emotions, and willed movements. Um, so this shows you how damaging a brain injury can be. Um, so if you're looking at figure 9-11, uh, B shows the areas of the cerebral cortex essential for willed movements, general sensations, vision, hearing, and normal speech. Injury or disease can destroy neurons, and a common example of destruction of neurons of the motor area of the cerebrum um, is that from a CVA, or cerebral, uh, cerebrovascular accident. And this is a hemorrhage from uh, cease of blood flow through your blood vessels in your cerebrum. Um, and this can happen uh, when this happens in a motor control area of the brain, the victim can no longer voluntarily move parts of their body on the opposite side um, where the CVA occurred. So this would be um, if I was to be walking down the street and something fell from the sky and hit me on the left side of my brain, it's going to affect the right side of my brain. So that's going to be um, what's affected by the stroke on the opposite side. And this is very beneficial so that when you are going in and you're taking uh, care of a patient that's had a stroke, you need to know what side to feed them on so that they can use that part of their body. Um, and this kind of gives you a clue as to where this accident has happened. Um, so first, I'm going to back up to 187 because there's a blue box that you're going to need to know about. And this is about Parkinson's disease. And I'm not going to hit super deep on it, but it does need to be known. Um, this is a chronic progressive nerve disorder that's resulting from a deficiency of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the basal nuclei of the cerebrum. So remember we said that dopamine mean I'm going to go ahead and go back um, this is a neurotransmitter and this belongs to a group of compounds called amines so these are um, playing roles in sleep motor function mood and pleasure recognition so in uh, this case the case with Parkinson's disease we are not getting the motor function that we're needing. So a group of signs associated with uh, this is Parkinsonism. It's characterized by rigidity and trembling of the head of the extremities, a uh, forward tilt of the trunk and shuffling manner as you're walking. So um, you could see this in Muhammad Ali, Michael J. Fox. Um, a lot of people that we know of that are famous have Parkinson's disease, not just with famous people. I know people personally, um, but this is because of a lack of dopamine. And it leads to misinformation in the part of the brain that normally prevents skeletal muscles from being overstimulated. So that's the issue is that they're, um, they're not 
a connection with these neurotransmitters. So dopamine is not being sent to the place it needs to be sent to. And so the skeletal muscles are kind of freaking out and they're doing all this crazy stuff and they can't control how they're walking. So they're going to be kind of tilted forward. Their arms might be swinging. They're going to be kind of uh, shaking around a little bit. People like this have to eat with special utensils because they can't hold their hands still while they're eating. So there's um, some interesting stuff going on here and this goes back to blood brain barrier so dopamine injection into the blood and dopamine pills are not effective treatments because dopamine cannot cross the blood brain barrier so it's meant to protect us but sometimes it doesn't help as much so a breakthrough of the treatment of uh, parkinson's disease came when the drug levodopa or l-dopa was found to increase the dopamine levels in afflicted patients so neurons use l-dopa which can cross the blood brain barrier to make dopamine so for some reason l-dopa does not always have the desired effects of individual patients and a number of alternatives alternatives have been developed. One option has uh, seen some success in the surgical grafting of normal dopamine secreting cells into the brains of individuals with Parkinson's. Um, another experimental option is artificial implant that gives electrical stimulation to the basal nuclei, causing them to produce more dopamine. I'm going to go ahead and mention one that's not on here. I'm sure that it'll be coming out in the next couple books because it is going to change the world. Um, but marijuana is also a... Um, a proven help for Parkinson's disease. Obviously, it's not going to cure it, um, but something having to do with this has helped with the side effects of Parkinson's disease where the patients can sit still. They're not shaking. They can sit up straight. They can eat normally, um, and this can be done by extracting from the plant in an oil that you can put under the patient's tongue. Obviously, we're not doing that um, unless it's legalized where we're at, and that's part of your hospital's protocol, but that is something else that um, is in the middle of being researched. Um, so do know about Parkinson's disease. So now we're going to go back over and we are going to look at table 9-2 on page 189.